And do you know he sees you? He sees you. And that's the title of my message this morning. He sees you. He's on the way. So if everyone's got your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew 14, verse 22. We'll see where he sees you. See, today I want to look at the story of where Jesus walked on the water. Um, Many of you will know this story. It's a good children's church story. Um, Many of you won't know this story. Um, It's a good one. Um, And maybe I'm going to look at it a little bit different to to how you've read it before. Um, The story is told out of three of the four Gospels, um, and today we're going to read it from Matthew. So hopefully everyone's there. If you're not there, give me a wave. Okay. So immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was there, alone. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were with him in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, as I said, this story is in three out of the four Gospels. It's also in John 6 and Mark 6. And each of them describes the events slightly differently. And some sceptics and some historians have tried to claim that it's these differences that means that the story is not true. But that's not the case. In fact, it's the slight differences and the slight variations that give more emphasis to the story. If we looked at it like this, if we were in a courtroom, if there was a trial, and there were three witnesses called to the stand, if each of them told the story exactly the same way, people would say they've talked in private, they've, they've put this together, they've fabricated the whole thing. But what they look for in witness testimonies is the slight differences. It's these slight differences because each person focuses on a different aspect of the story, looks at a different part of it. That's what corroborates it and makes it more substantial and more believable. Another reason for the differences in the Gospels is because each Gospel was written for a different audience. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why Matthew includes many of the teachings of Christ and numerous references to the Old Testament prophecies. He was proving to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Mark wrote to a Greek or Gentile audience to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. So he makes his case by focusing on the events of Christ's life. He moves very quickly from one event to the other, demonstrating Christ's lordship over all of creation. Luke wrote to give a historically accurate account of Jesus' life. And John, he wrote his 
gospel many years after his encounter with Jesus. He focused on the theological aspect of Jesus and wrote that in his gospels. I could go into the reliability of the gospels when they were written, etc., but we'll save that maybe for another time. So I'm going to jump around a little bit between the three accounts. So if you want to keep a finger in Matthew 14, John 6 and Mark 6, or I've also asked Lee to put the scriptures on the screen as well. So if you don't want to do that, you can follow along on the screen. So Jesus walked across the Sea of Galilee to the disciples in their boat, crossing to the other side. And I said this last time I spoke, and I said it again. What happened? What's the context of this? What happened before this? What happened after this? I don't know about you, but when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm studying my Bible, I like to picture it in my mind. I like to envision everything. I imagine what time of the day it was, what time of the year it was, what the people were wearing, what they were doing, how were they sat. A thousand other different things I like to imagine in my mind so I can get a full picture of what happened. And what happened before Jesus sent them out in the boat? It was the feeding of the 5,000. One of the largest miracles, largest scale miracles in the Bible. And we can know roughly when this happened. Because in Matthew 14, 13, we're told that the disciples had just told Jesus about John the Baptist's death. Now, numerous sources and historians claim that this was on the 29th of August, but let's be a little generous and give a time frame of somewhere between August to September. So we know that the feeding of the 5,000 would have taken place some point in late September or early October. And after this amazing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus descends his disciples away in the boat and goes up to the mountain to pray. In John 6, verse 16, it says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. So John tells us that it was already dark when they got in the boat to depart. Now we know through the internet that it would have got dark in that time somewhere between 7pm and 9pm. So now we've got a time of day when, the, when it happened. We also know that the Sea of Galilee is roughly 8 miles across. And vessels of that time period, it should have taken them about 2 hours to get across wasn't like that boat that we saw down on the Barbican. The Reef Chief. Did anyone see the Reef Chief down on the Barbican? The 25 million pound yacht. Rob saw it. You ordered it. <laughs> Rob's waiting to take delivery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why he was looking for the Amazon vans last week. <laughs> so, the Sea of Galilee, eight miles across should have taken them about two hours to get across rowing in vessels of that time period. So let's say that they left the shore at 8pm. They should have got to the other side at the very latest at 11pm. Now at least four of the disciples we know were experienced fishermen. It, we know that from the Bibles. We don't know some of the other occupations. But they would have been used to travelling on the Sea of Galilee. They would have been used to the prevailing winds, the storms, the currents, the situations they could have found themselves in. They would have been confident on the water. But it says the wind was against them and they struggled to make any headway at all. When Jesus reaches them, they are only three to four miles into their journey, only halfway through. So it means it had taken them seven hours to row three to four miles. Now, 
we'll be very broad with our nautical terms here. But one knot is roughly equivalent to one mile an hour land speed. So this meant the disciples were rowing at about half a mile an hour for seven hours. Now, to put that into context again, walking speed is anywhere from three to five miles an hour. So they were not going anywhere very quickly. And Matthew and Mark both state that Jesus came to them during the fourth watch. The fourth watch is between 3 and 6 a.m. So we know that they've been rowing for seven hours. The disciples were coming off a truly miraculous day, the feeding of the 5,000. And you can just imagine the chatter amongst them talking about this day, talking about what they'd seen, talking about what Jesus had done. And they're probably thinking, right, lads, it's just a quick row across the sea. Then we'll get there, we'll chill out, we'll have a fire, we'll talk about it, and we can relax. But now their journey has taken three times as long as what they first thought. Have you been in a journey that's taken longer than you thought? Have you been in a storm that's lasted longer than you thought? Have you had a storm come that's rocked your world where you thought you'd be confident? Now, what do I mean when I talk about a storm? In the gospel, it's a literal storm that comes and troubles the disciples. But it's also a metaphor, it's a picture. A storm can be any trial or situation that comes against you and it comes against us in our lives. It could be a financial storm, trials in our faith, health situations. The list is endless. A storm is something that comes against you in your life, and just like the disciples, you can feel that you're not making any headway at all. You can feel like you're trying to walk in treacle, trying to reach the other side. I'm trying, but I'm walking so slowly I can't make it. But let's look here and see what it says in Mark 6, verse 48. Then he saw them, that's Jesus, straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus saw them. He was on the mountaintop praying, and he saw them. He left the mountaintop to go to them. You know, Jesus left the mountaintop approximately one hour before he got to the disciples. He's on his way to you now, and you don't even know it. He's coming into your situation now, and you don't even know it. You get it? He sees you. He sees you. And he's coming to you. You might not know it. You might still be in the middle of your storm. But he is on the way. He is coming. He never leaves you or forsakes you. In your troubles, in your battles, in your storms, in your trials. And when Jesus got in the boat, immediately the storm ended. You need Jesus in your boat. Now, you see, this is not the first time the disciples faced a storm. We look back a few chapters in Matthew 8, and we see again the disciples were in a storm, but this time Jesus was in the boat with them. And Jesus calmed the storm. But it wasn't long after this that they found themselves in another storm. But this time Jesus wasn't with them. Now, between those two events in Matthew is only six chapters. But what happened in those six chapters... Jesus had sent the disciples out to grow their faith and their trust in him. He was building their faith and building their trust and building everything about them so that they could face things that come against them. But here's a thought. 
Did the disciples do anything wrong when the storm came? They were obeying Jesus. Jesus told them to go to the other side. But still the storm came. Storms can still come into our lives even when we're following what God says. It doesn't stop the storm from coming. We can be obeying God's command and doing what he's told us, but the storm can still come. See, this time when Jesus sends the disciples to the boat and almost immediately they get into a storm, Jesus is on the mountaintop praying. Now, we don't know what Jesus was praying about. I'm sure he was thanking God for the feeding of the 5,000 that had just happened. But I believe he was praying for the disciples in their crossing as well. You see, as our Christian walk develops and our trust in Jesus increases... Jesus increasingly allows us to face our storms because we know we can rely on him. Jesus praying on the mountain is a picture of what Jesus is doing for you and me right now. In Romans 8.34, it says this, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In 1 John, we read that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. In Hebrews 7, we learn that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Just as Jesus was praying on the mountaintop for the disciples, he is now interceding with God for you and me. Even if we may feel alone in our storm, in our struggle, in our trial, Jesus is sat with God advocating for us. He is on our side. He is fighting with us. We are not alone in our struggles even if it may feel that way sometimes. Jesus is fighting with us. And I love this in Mark 6, which is why I call it. Then he saw them straining at rowing. He sees you. He sees the struggle that you're facing. He sees the trial you're in. He sees the walk you're taking. He sees you. And he's on the way. Now, when Jesus reached the disciples, they were afraid and thought it was a ghost. And to be honest, after seven hours of rowing in the middle of a storm, if I saw a man appear, I would probably think the same thing. And it says in Mark 6, 48, that now about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And I thought about that. And I thought where it says... And he would have passed them by. I thought, that doesn't sound like my Jesus. He doesn't see you in a storm and walk past you. He doesn't see you struggling with life and just go, it's a bit choppy out here, chaps, isn't it? I'll, I'll, I'll see you over there, all right? In the Amplified, it even says that Jesus meant to pass them by. So, do you know what I did? Dan knows what I did. Wendy would have known what I did if she was here. I looked at the Greek. Alison knew what I did. And what did it do? The Greek, it amazed me. So the word that used here for pass by originates from the Old Testament. And it's the verb parakamai. And this indicates a parade of divinity such as characterized in Old Testament theophany. What is theophany? This word is 
comes from the Greek word theos, meaning God, and phano, which means to manifest, or to show, or to dis- demonstrate, or dis- to display. Theophany is the manifestation of God in some visible way. Moses had an experience with God, with theophany, in Exodus 33. And it says, And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back. And Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, said, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. These are examples of theophany, a visible manifestation of God. Now, in both these encounters where we read that God passed by both Moses and Elijah, it's the same verb, parekamai, where God passes by and displays his divinity and glory. You see, this is what Jesus was doing to the disciples. He was displaying himself as God to the disciples. He was revealing himself as God. But Jesus goes one step further than just displaying his divinity. He actually tells the disciples that he is God. He says, it is I. And again, in the Amplified Version, it makes this clear by saying, it is I, the I am. Jesus is declaring himself as God and showing himself as God to the disciples. And in Matthew 14, 33, it says, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, this is the first time in the Gospels that the disciples say that Jesus is divine and the Son of God. Up until that point, they had not fully grasped who Jesus was. In fact, they never fully grasped who he was until his ascension. But in the previous storm, when they were in the boat with Jesus, they said, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? They didn't understand who Jesus was. See, sometimes it takes a storm for us to see who Jesus is. Sometimes, as we go through the storm, Jesus reveals himself to be fully God in our lives. Sometimes we would never have fully understood who God is unless we'd gone through the storm. Jesus is constantly revealing himself to you and me, more and more, taking us to greater depths of understanding of his glory and his righteousness. Now, everything Jesus did was to fill the subscriptions. Walking on water was not just a quick shortcut to get across to the other side. He didn't just do it because he felt like it. When Job is describing God, in chapter 9, verse 8, he said, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus was displaying himself as God and fulfilling the scriptures surrounding God, so there could be no doubt as to who he was. And Mark, using the same Greek word as the Old Testament, again, is proving to his readers that Jesus was God. They would have understood that. The scribes and the Pharisees, they would have understood exactly what he meant when he wrote that. Now, we can't look at the story of walking on the water without the fact of looking that Peter also walked on the water. And in Matthew 14, starting in verse 28, it says, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. 
And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he began to see that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? As Peter focused on Jesus, he could walk on the water. But he got distracted and took his eyes off Jesus and his surroundings, and that's when he got to sink. Now, we've all heard this sermon so many times. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't look at what's going on around you. And I'm not going to repeat that sermon now. But I also grew up on sermons that talked about Peter had little faith. You've got to have big faith if you want to walk on water. You've got to have large faith. You've got to have giant faith. Hang on. Peter walked on water with little faith. You see, it's never been about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. Now, while I was reading about this story and and researching, I discovered something I didn't know. Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. Mark was a disciple of Peter. And Mark's gospel is generally accepted to be the first gospel that was written, and it's thought to actually be Peter's story recounted to Mark that Mark then later wrote down. So it logically leads to this question. If the gospel of Mark is Peter's story... Why didn't Peter tell Mark about the time he walked on water? Was it not important to Peter? I don't know. But I believe he didn't write this down because I believe Peter was ashamed that he took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. You see, when we look at Peter's character throughout the Gospels, we see time and time again some character flaws in Peter. He doubts. He gets aggravated with Jesus. He denies Jesus when he goes to the cross. He swears oaths and curses, denies knowing Jesus, even in private where there would be no retribution against him. This is Peter's character flaw. But it's Peter who Christ calls... Sorry, it's Peter who Jesus calls to build his church upon. Despite Peter's flaws, Jesus calls him and uses him. He does the same with us. We don't have to be perfect for Jesus to use us. If we did, none of us would have been chosen. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short. And Corinthians 1 tells us how God chooses the lowly to declare his glory in so much that we cannot boast in ourselves, but we must boast in the Lord, because it's through him that all things are possible. Don't you love the fact that despite our human nature, Jesus still calls us? Jesus shows us time and time again it's not about us, but it's about him. He has grace sufficient for all of us, and through him anything is possible. It's not in our own strength and our own character. It's through Jesus working in us and working through us. See, Jesus walking on the water is a picture to show us he can walk on anything. Any storm you are facing, any difficulty you are facing, he can walk straight into that situation. He's not left you to deal with it on your own. He sees you. He's on the way. And immediately, immediately, 
the storm can be brought to rest in your life. And one last thing I just want to look at about this story, and that's about perspective. When we look at the story of Jesus walking on the water, we can totally miss what happened before and what happened after. Again, what's the context? Before the storm, great miracle to the multitudes. After the storm, great miracles to numerous individuals on the other side of the sea. And we can miss that. How do we look at our lives? Especially when we're in a storm. Do we focus on the storm, only seeing that small aspect? Or could we take a step back and look at it differently? If we could look at the whole picture and realize this is just a season, and we can see what God did for us before, and what we're going through, and what God's going to do for us again, maybe that would change our outlook if we could change our perspective at how we looked at it. Do you know he loves you so much and he desires to be in your life? He desires to walk into your storm today. I don't know what your storm is. You could have been in your storm for so long that you don't even realize you're in a storm anymore. You could just think this is just life. But this is not life. The storm you are facing is not life. God has come that you may have life and life more abundant in him. You're not supposed to live in your storm. You've got to walk through your storm. You go through your storm. Though I walk through the valley with the shadow of death, I walk through the valley. I don't stay in the valley. I walk through it. Jesus walks you through the valley. And he wants to be in your storm. He wants to be in your life. It's no mistake that I didn't get a chance to bring this word last week. Because someone here today, someone watching online today or at a later date, they need to hear this word that they wouldn't have heard it last week. God's timing is perfect in everything. And he wants you to hear this. But no matter what you're facing, what you're going through this morning, he wants to be in it with you. Whether you don't know Jesus yet, he wants, him to, he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. He wants to be in your life. And when he's in your life, he will walk through, walk through the storms with you. He will comfort you. He will protect you. He will elevate you. He loves you so much that later in the Bible we read that he gave himself up willingly to be the perfect sacrifice for you and for me and for all of our sins, all of our past sins, all of our future sins. He went and sacrificed himself willingly so that you may be with him forever and have eternal life. Do you know he would have done it if it was just for me? He would have done it if it was just for you. Just for you. Just for you. He would have sacrificed himself just for you because he loves you that much. He loves you with all... You can't understand how much he loves us. Yet he sacrificed himself willingly that we may know him. Now that's the end of my preach. 
But if you want to know Jesus, if you want Jesus to walk into your storm, walk into your situation, been doing it all morning. Rob called people out right from the start of the meeting. We don't have to wait for Jesus. He's here. He wants to touch your life. He wants to come into your life. Whatever you're facing, he wants to come into. And so if we all stand, I want us to pray. And then if you want us to pray for you, and we would love to do that.